Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at You guys can go ahead and have a seat. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. John chapter 2 is where we're going to uh, spend the uh, beginning of our time today. John chapter 2, looking at verse 1 through 11. Uh, today we're continuing in our series through the Gospels. Uh, we're, we're tracing the life of Jesus, some of the major events uh, in the life of Jesus for us to catch a glimpse of um, all the implications of what it means to, uh, or, or what it means for us that Jesus ultimately came down, that he ministered to us, that he took away the sins of the world through the death on a cross, and then rose to resume his throne at the right hand of God. And so last week, um, we saw the kind of the pregame report of Jesus' ministry through John the Baptist. And, and really, John the Baptist was telling us two things primarily. One, don't miss Jesus. That was his big thing. Don't miss Jesus. I'm here to prepare the way. I'm here to herald the good news that Jesus has arrived, that the kingdom of heaven is here. Don't miss Jesus. And the second thing that John the Baptist's life kind of um, resembled as well as, as preaching and proclaiming from just his example is the fact that we are to make much of Jesus and to make less of ourselves. We are to make much of Jesus in, in our thoughts, in our actions, in our deeds, in our conduct, and in anything and everything in our life. Jesus is to look good in those things. And we are to make less of ourselves. And that's not meaning that we are to demean ourselves or belittle ourselves, but we're not to be the ones who get the credit. That's what he's saying. We're not to be the ones that whenever something is, is done that's awesome, we're not to say, look at me. We're to say, look at Jesus. Why? Because John the Baptist doesn't want us to miss him. He wants us to see him and to receive him in all his glory. Today we see, um, we're, we're going to be looking at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and specifically, we're going to be looking at the first miracle that Jesus performed when he turned water into wine. And so, yes, um, we're going to be dealing with Jesus and alcohol today. Um, th this is a comfortable topic for, or topic for some people, and for others, it can be very uncomfortable at the same time. Um, and so I get that, I understand that, um, and, and this is why what we need to do as a church is we need to come into this place and we need to lay our preferences down. We need to lay our cultural backgrounds down at the altar in order for us to come into this place and view, look at alcohol, biblically speaking. We need to come in and see what has God done in, in the creation of alcohol, in the creation of, of us being able to partake or not partake of it in a way that leads to the joy of us, the joy of others, as well as the glory of God. And so that's what we're going to be trying to tackle in our, in our text today. In, it's in Scripture. It's God's authoritative written word. It's meant to be there again, for our joy. So, so we're, we're, we're not coming in. Some, some of you may come from a background. I, I come from a background where it's very uh, teetotaler, which means everybody abstains from alcohol, or if they drink alcohol, they don't tell people that they drink alcohol. That, that's my background. That's my culture. In, in the deep Bible South is when you go into someone's house, they, they don't have it in the main refrigerator. It's in the refrigerator that's in the garage. 
All right, because they don't want you seeing the fact that they might drink. And so as I kind of grew up, I, I remember uh, kind of seeing at different times, well, I didn't know so-and-so drank, or I didn't know so-and-so drank over here. And, and for me, it was an issue because I wasn't raised in the church, but at the same time, it, it still um, created thoughts and cultures. It shaped the way that I viewed it for a long time because of, uh, of kind of the, what everyone else said about it rather than what ultimately God's Word had to say about it. And so I grew up in a culture that was very anti. It's, it's the devil's poison. You shouldn't drink it. Um, and so there's been a lot of things to, to kind of overcome in that in my own mind, um, as well as in, even within family, um, as far as that's concerned. And then there's others of us on the other side of the coin where we grew up in a culture where it's not an issue. It was in our household. We were familiar with it. We were around it. We, we partake of it. There is no conviction there. there. There is no negative feelings of guilt, even though I know it's not wrong. But yet at the same time, when I partake, I, I, I still feel some guilt there. Like some people don't experience that. And that's good. That's great. We're excited about that. We're excited about the fact that, that you can view it in a way of a freedom. However, there's also a reality that we're going to look at here where there's sometimes, even though you may have a freedom to partake of it, there's ways in which we should also sacrifice that freedom for the sake of others around us, for the sake of others. And so we're going to get into to kind of all of that, um, of what this looks like in, in Jesus turning water into wine. And so um, let's pray and then we're going to jump into this wedding at Cana. God, we, uh, we are so thankful for the fact that you are a gifter, you are a God of good gifts, you are a God who has created everything that we know, that we see, that we perceive, that we get to partake of, that we get to enjoy, whether it's food or drinks or whatever it looks like. God, you've created everything for our enjoyment that's meant to roll past our enjoyment in order for us to glorify and honor you. Ultimately, for us to, to say, when I eat this steak and it tastes so good, God, you are good because you thought of that flavor and you created it. God, when we drink a, a wine that goes along with a, t with a steak, God, you created that flavor in order for us to enjoy and give glory and honor to you. But God, also, you created opportunities for us to be able to sacrifice certain freedoms in order to minister to those around us who have issues with certain things that we may eat or drink or do. And so God, give us right discernment today. Give us your Holy Spirit to come into our minds and into our hearts to be able to illuminate within our souls the Word of God in such a way that it, that it gives us the right convictions to be able to discern the moments in our lives where we get to exercise freedom and glorify you in doing that, and then also we get to sacrifice freedom and ultimately glorify you in that as well. So God, be with us as we go through your word. And again, thank you so much for the freedom to be able to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 2, picking it up in verse 1, Jesus' first miracle. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, 
fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. A couple of things to point out here in this main text. Um, so Jesus, his mother, and some of his disciples uh, were invited to this wedding party. And usually you were not invited to wedding parties uh, unless you knew someone in the wedding party or uh, you were a distant relative of the, the people that were getting married. And so this could be someone that was close to the family of Jesus or even a distant relative of Jesus. But regardless of the fact, they, they were invited to this party. Jesus and the disciples are enjoying themselves, and all of a sudden there happens to be a, a crisis in which there's a game-time decision that needs to happen. They run out of wine at the wedding. And some of you might be thinking, well, well that, that isn't a very big deal. Like, um, people run out of stuff all the times at wedding. I, I remember at our wedding, I, I think we ran out of uh, shrimp skewers um, before like we were even able to, to get any. And so it was like, I didn't even get like some of the things that were at our wedding because we ran out before we even got to the reception. Um, and, and so for some of us, we might look at that as though that's not a big deal. But in the first century, um, in this day and age, it's a big deal. Parties would go on for several days. And in order for, and if someone were to run out of food and the ones who were actually in charge of the food were the, the family of the bridegroom. So if the groom mismanaged and ran out of food, what the, the bride's family could actually do is then file a lawsuit against him um, in order to sue him to, to, to ultimately gain back the pain that they had or went through because uh, he mismanaged the family. And so you can kind of see like this is a big issue in this culture because right out of the gate, that's not a great start to the honeymoon, right? Like, yeah, you ran out and now our family is suing us. Like, that's not a good start here. And so they run out of wine at the wedding. Um, Mary's the first to bring this attention to Jesus by saying they have no wine. I love Jesus' response here. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Uh, my hour is not yet come. Now, like, did Jesus really just call his mother woman um, straight up? Now, I know I do that at times, like with my mom. Um, but at the same time, when I do that, like, she's ready to throw something at me. Um, because, like, she sees it as, like, a derogatory term. Like, how dare you call me woman? Um, like, now she probably thinks it's cuter. But, like, back in the day, like, it was, it was not good. Like, she's throwing shoes at me if I were to do that. Um, but here's the reality is, is sometimes people see this as, like, a sarcasm of Jesus. But it's actually not. Um, like doing the work on this, um, the, the, the term woman in the first century is actually similar to us saying ma'am. So this was actually a, a, a right way to address a woman in first century. It would be like us saying yes ma'am or no ma'am. And so Jesus is just responding authentically here. Um, as far as Jesus saying, what does this have to do with me? He's making a statement that the initial wine problem is not his problem. It's the problem of the bridegroom in this wedding. But the difference is, is he chooses to then take on this problem and fix it so that the bridegroom would not have to pay the penalty for his own screw up. Can you begin to see the picture of the gospel here? 
You've got this bridegroom who comes in who mismanages how much food they're supposed to have at this wedding, which then creates a problem between him and his now bride, the wife, and, and ultimately is not going to set them on a great trajectory for the start of their marriage. And then Jesus comes in in order to fix a problem that's not ultimately his problem in order to provide for them. We begin to see the picture of the gospel play itself out. There's a wedding going on, bringing two people together for matrimony. And Jesus comes in and solves it. Not only does he solve it, but he actually makes it better, right? Like, what, what does the, the master of the feast say? Like, usually people start out with the good wine, and then they kind of let it trail off towards the end, and the poor wine's at the back end of it. But the, wine, the, the, the master of the feast comes in and says, hey, instead, like, now you're saving the best wine for last. And so what we're ultimately seeing here is a picture of what Jesus is ultimately going to accomplish for us in the wedding feast of the Lamb. Like this is a picture of the great wedding in which Jesus is ultimately bringing the bride together with the bridegroom himself as we feast in eternity. Jesus ultimately being the one who's coming into that picture and providing all the food, all the wine, all that is necessary in order for us to come and commune with him without any issues coming into play here. This is the picture that we're seeing happening in this story. We see this in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and, and, the, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So just a warning for all of us out here, if we didn't realize this or not, but you're going to drink alcohol in heaven. I don't want that to be like a shocker for us when we get there and begin rebuking Jesus for the fact that he brought wine to a feast as we're in heaven. So, so for those of us who have background or cultures um, where we consider it the devil's poison, anything that has alcohol in it, Let's see here that this is something that not only can be enjoyed in, in, in creation, but is also something that is designed by God himself. Aged wine, alcohol. This bridegroom will not miscalculate how much food and wine is needed. This feast that we're going to enjoy is going to be the best of the best. I mean, he's showing us the picture here that this is just a, a regular wedding in Cana in Galilee. But yet he ultimately comes in in order to make it better. And that's what he's going to do in every single one of our lives is the fact that we, we understand that there's going to be times where I miscalculate. There's going to be times that I mismanage. There's going to be times that Kelsey mismanages. There's going to be times where we mess up and it's going to br bring opportunities for us to resent, for us to, to be frustrated with one another, for us to, and, and any, marriage, any married couple in here can understand that. 
can say yes and amen. Like I agree, there are times in our marriage where, where we have strife, where we have pain. And what Jesus is showing in this miracle of turning water into wine and providing something for this wedding in order for it to finish great is the fact that he's going to come in and remove any obstacle, remove anything in our life that reveals pain and suffering. And he's going to bring it in in order for us to receive joy and pleasure and a party. We're going to have a good time. This feast is going to have everybody at this feast. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're going to be at this feast. The Apostle Paul is going to be at this feast. Peter is going to be at this feast. The disciples are all going to be at this feast. John the Baptist is going to be at this feast. And probably more than anybody, he's going to be excited because he's finally able to get off of his locust and honey diet and not able to drink wine. And he's going to partake. He's going to enjoy. Because this is what God is doing for us. Now, as for this issue of actually turning water into wine, they didn't have very many options back in this day and age. It was pretty much water or wine. Um, like, like it wasn't Jesus all of a sudden now going to throw them a curveball and looking 2,000 years ahead and saying, hey, they're going to create this drink called root beer. And, and what I'm going to do is turn water into root beer for them to enjoy. Now, I'm sure nobody at this wedding would have complained about that because they would have been like, oh, my word, like this is God's drink. But here's the reality is like there was no other option. I like root beer. There's no other options at this wedding. It was water or wine, water or alcohol. And this is what he turns it into. And so what we have to do on our side is see that this isn't a biblical cultural issue. This isn't just something that's been warring with people all along where, where it's either you drink water and you're the pure people or you drink wine and you're the debaucherous people. Like this, this isn't either or. This is both were culturally accepted in this day and age. And so what's happened is over the, the span of history, as, as sin abounds and as sin increases, we take good things that God has created and provided for us, we abuse and pervert those good things, and then they become cultural issues. We then begin to attribute whatever those things are to sin. Rather than actually looking that what it is in and of itself is actually a good thing. I mean, just think about it. Like, alcohol is one of the easiest ones for us to look at and say, this is a perverted drink. But the reality is, is it's a good drink that we can actually enjoy. Think, internet. Can internet be perverted? Absolutely. Is internet in and of itself wrong? No. It's only when you get sinners' hands on it and pervert it and twist it and change it is a way in which we can use it for wrong. Take sex. Sex is created by God to be good and enjoyed, yet it's easy for us to, to twist it and pervert it and change it into a way in which we think that it's wrong. That's one of the worst things that's always happened in the South is, is sex is wrong, sex is wrong, sex is wrong, sex is wrong. You get married, it's great. And all of a sudden now you've got people's minds that are twisted and construed to think now what I'm doing is actually wrong even though I'm free to engage in it. And so we have this mind. Like it's, I don't know how many times I heard in the churches like throughout high school that I would visit here and there that it was like sex, drug, and rock and roll. Like it, those are the things that you have to stay away from. They would include within that. 
alcohol and, 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 and bad company. And, and, and so like the idea of actually evangelizing out to bad company was an issue because now you're dealing with bad company. You've got bad friends. Well, if we don't have any bad friends, how are we supposed to get the gospel out? We've got to engage. So there has to be a way in which we can actually engage in things that have become perverted in order to redeem them back into what God has designed, what God has ultimately created for us to be able to enjoy. And so I've got a question that I want to ask, or I really want to answer here, is when, it, when, it, when we deal with the, the issue of alcohol, ask this question anytime that you're going to partake or not partake of it, is, is it bringing both joy to you and others as well as glory for God? Is it bringing joy for both you and others as well as glory for God? If you can answer that question with yes, you're free. That's the ultimate freedom that we get to experience is when we can say whatever it is that I'm partaking of, that I'm enjoying in creation, if it's bringing joy to me and joy to others around me, and God is receiving glory in it, then by all means, whether you're eating or drinking or whatever you're doing, do it all for the glory of God, as 1 Corinthians 10.31 says. Guys, that's the freedom of the gospel. That's what the gospel is ultimately preaching, is that God has come down and has created everything in order for it to be good, and we are to enjoy it, as he has said in the Garden of Eden, enjoy every single tree that I have created. He brings Eve into the picture. Enjoy Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Like, enjoy these things. But as soon as those things, those good things become God things, we elevate them in order for them to be our ultimate satisfaction is when we then pervert them. Is, then when, is when we then ultimately mess it up. Worship can literally be defined as anything we do that leads to our joy and God's glory. We're free to eat, we're free to drink, anything that leads to our joy, the joy of others, and the glory of God. So four things that, that I think when we're dealing with the issue of alcohol, that we can express our freedom in worship. The first one is this. We express our freedom by simply obeying the law. All right, our, our, Obeying the laws of the land. There are certain laws of the land in regards to our alcohol that are meant to protect us, but also that the scriptures tell us we need to adhere to. Romans 13, 1-7 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all who is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Basically, that's saying, follow the laws of the land so long as the laws of the land do not go against God's word. 
follow the laws of the land. Well, our law is currently telling us that if you are not 21, you cannot partake of alcohol. So to, to, to not be 21 and to partake of alcohol means that you are sinning. That's what the scriptures are telling us when it tells us to obey the laws of the land for this is right and this is good. And so that was always the easiest one for me whenever I was a youth pastor and I would teach the students. Guys, this isn't an issue for you. Because as long as you're partaking under the age of 21, you're sinning. That's done, period. That's the issue. Now, when, once you hit 21, there's going to be other factors that come into play that we're going to talk about. But up until that point, that's the issue. Now, our law currently has a lot of, of, of laws that adhere to drunkenness in the public realm. Obviously, driving while intoxicated, driving under the influence, you're going to go to jail for that. That's right and good, that that is our law. However, the, the Word of God takes drunkenness to another level when it comes to drunkenness in general. There's no laws in our land about drunkenness in your own home, right? Like there's no one coming every single night and knocking on your door to check on you to see if you're drunk or not. But this is, a, this is a reality. So we obey the laws of the land, but at the same time where the laws are lenient and God's word is stricter, we obey God's word. We obey his word. So we exercise our freedom by simply obeying the law. The second one is we, ex we express our freedom in our own conscience. Romans 14, verse 1 through 9 says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person believe, or only eats vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He and, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Guys, when it, when it comes to people's conscience, and, and another way to put that would be someone's personal beliefs regarding a topic. The Bible refers to do, two different types of people here in the scriptures. It refers to the weak and refers to the strong. The weak are referred to those whose conscience is still bound by scruples. And a scruple is a feeling of doubt or hesitation as to whether what I'm doing is right or wrong. So the, so the weak person would, would ultimately war within themselves around certain things in God's creation that are good and right. However, they're doubting or hesitating whether or not they partake of it is right or good. That would be considered weak in understanding the freedom of the gospel regarding God's creation. Okay? Certain people found it difficult or had doubts about eating these meats 
because they believed they were doing something wrong even though Jesus liberated them from the bondage. So the reason why they have that in Scripture is because the Old Testament, the Jewish law, mentions certain meats that the people were not allowed to partake of because they were considered unclean. Moving into the New Testament, Jesus liberates themselves, uh, liberates the people from this conviction and ultimately says that anything that is in and of itself is clean unless we make it unclean. So he's getting into the idea of perverting here. The idea of construing within our minds something that is clean or unclean. And so Jesus is saying it's creation in itself, meats, all meats, all food, all drinks, in and of itself, is clean, and therefore, because of the gospel, because of the freedom of Christ, to enjoy all of creation, we can partake. So the strong are referred to those who understand that and exercise that freedom, who are able to come in and say that everything in and of itself is good and created by God, and we can partake. The issue, though, is the idea on the weak side is that the weak want to superimpose their beliefs on those who are strong. Superimpose your own truth about God's truth. Take giving, for example. The Bible teaches that we are to give a tithe. We are to give a tenth of our income back to the mission of God, the advancement of the gospel through the local church, through the community of believers. That is right. That is good. We are to do that generously, sacrificially um, to the church. God teaches that. What would be weak on our end is if our leadership were to come out and say, not only should you give a tenth, but you should also give a tenth of everything that you have. There's 168 hours in the week. We think that you should give 16 to 17 hours of that to the church. And so now I'm going to employ everybody for an additional 16 to 17 hours. I'm going to give you jobs and I'm going to need you to fulfill those things because that's right and good. Not only that, but I'm going to need you to give a tenth of, of your clothes. I'm going to need you to give a tenth of your pantry. I'm going to need you to do anything and everything that you have. A tenth of it, give it to the church. That would be me taking a truth of God and then adding more truths to it in order for other people to have to then abide by. That's, that's me expressing a weakness in understanding the gospel. That's me expressing a weakness in, in understanding the truth and what the Bible is ultimately teaching about something. And so, for example, we, we, we take that idea in, in, in church background context that have issues with alcohol and we then attribute extra rules to it. For example, in the South, if you're holding a root beer bottle in public, you're seen as an alcoholic. That happens. That happens. That's a chance I'll always be willing to take, but that happens. Like, that's a reality. Is, is there are people who view things and add more rules to it in order to make themselves feel better about their own conscience, their own convictions. So we need to express worship to God in our own conscience. And, and, and the way that we do that is by digging into God's word to develop a right conscience regarding a specific issue or topic in scripture. So for example, around the topic of alcohol, if we have an issue with alcohol and we view it as wrong when it comes to seeing someone else partaking of it, then rather than looking at that person and saying there must be something wrong in their life, what we need to do is dive into the scriptures to see if there's something in scriptures that might be wrong about us. 
Before we're quick to judge someone else, as it says, do not cast judgment on those who do partake, we need to look into ourselves first to see if there's something within us that might be wrong. We need to see what Scripture is ultimately teaching about this issue. But here's the other thing, too, on that side, when it comes to conscience. The weak are not just those who do not partake. You can be strong in your understanding of the gospel and not partake. Like the strong aren't just those who do, and the weak are those who don't. You can be strong and not partake. And the reason why is, for example, you might not have found any alcohol that tastes good. Therefore, you don't enjoy it. So to then put yourself, or to, 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 to kind of begrudgingly partake of something that you're not enjoying is a sin. If you don't find anything that tastes good. Maybe you're on a tight budget. Alcohol tends to cost a little bit more than soda does, right? So instead of getting the $7 glass of wine, you get the $3 glass of Coke and you enjoy it. Instead of Jack and Coke, you're just Coke. That would be strong because you are actually, you are expressing, you are exercising stewardship in that moment because you're saying, I can't afford to do this, so I'm going to do this and I'm going to enjoy this. So we don't need to see it as black and white as those who drink and those who don't, but rather when it comes to conscience, we each come up within our own lives, whether it's in our household, how our household is going to view this, or, or, or more so how we're going to exercise this freedom, we come up with what's going to work for us based on our situation. Whether we enjoy it, whether we don't enjoy it, whether we can afford it, whether we can't afford it, whether it's going to impact others for the sake of the gospel, whether it's not going to impact others for the sake of the gospel, we express our freedom in the worship of alcohol or in the worship of God through alcohol by coming up with a conscience. Don't misquote me on that one. <laughs> the third thing we do is we express our freedom in moderation. So if you're saying that alcohol is not inherently evil and it's not the devil's poison and we can enjoy it, how much can we enjoy it in our freedom? Let me read a couple of passages before we define moderation. Ephesians 5.18 says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5 starts off with, um, with, with kind of the black and white issue here. There's drunk and there's not drunk. There, there are not levels to this or stages of drunkenness. There's, there's soberness and there's drunkenness, and one is considered debauchery, which is excessive indulgence in sensual behaviors. Drunkenness does not have to mean getting blacked out drunk and waking up the next day not remembering. Like that's, that's kind of what some of us have a view of what drunkenness is, is if I get to that point, I'm drunk. Usually you get to a point to where you don't realize you're drunk. You've been drunk for quite a while. It's kind of how that works. Drunkenness could also mean that you turn to alcohol in order to ease the stresses of life around you. The word debauchery in the Greek means dissipation. It means to abandon reality or to escape reality. So to turn to something in order to escape the stresses that you're dealing with is a form of drunkenness. So guess what? Drunkenness isn't just with alcohol. If I want to turn to entertainment in order to escape the realities that are going on in my life, then I'm becoming drunk to whatever that entertainment is. That could be TV shows. That could be, um, that, that could be going to or, or just investing in, in sports entertainment. 
That could be anything and everything that we turn to in order to ease the stress that we're dealing with rather than turning to God in order to ease the stress that we're dealing with. Listen to um, Proverbs 23, verse 29, and, uh, because I don't want you just to hear that, that drunkenness is wrong um, because everyone knows that. Every, everyone's been taught being drunk is wrong, but rather I want to see... I want you to see why drunkenness is wrong. I want you to see the root here when it comes to this. Proverbs 23, 29 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? And who in here could say, I do. <laughs> like, Every single one of us can look at that passage and say, I experience that. If not daily, Every other day, every couple of days, I experience stress, pain, and suffering in my life. I experience frustration. I experience battling with sin and temptation within my own life. I experience things that do not feel good and I do not enjoy. Yes and amen. Every single one of us can experience that, right? Or can say that we partake. We understand this verse. It's interesting then where Proverbs goes to in verse 30. He says this, those who tarry, which means to stay longer than intended, those who tarry over, long over wine, which could also mean like, I, I didn't mean to have three glasses. I meant to just have one glass, but I ended up having three glasses. Those who go to try mixed wine, so maybe the original stuff wasn't strong enough, and so I need more, so I'm going to go on to something else. Verse 31, do not look at wine when it is red, He's basically saying when alcohol looks especially desirable, calls for caution. Man, I could really use a drink right now. Just that little phrase, that little statement has underlining meanings to it, right? When it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. Verse 32, in the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. That's a hangover, all right? In the end, it bites like a snake. Verse 33, your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. Now you're on to experiencing hallucinations and confused thinking. Verse 34, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. Ever been dizzy from drinking too much? Maybe a little tipsy? Verse 35, they struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. Drunkenness is, is not only an escape from emotional or spiritual pain, but also physical pain. People want to escape from this. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Drunkenness craves more despite the pain that it brings. Guys, where did this begin? It began with understanding and dealing with pain and suffering, frustrations and stress in life. That's the root cause for the reason for drunkenness, for leading us into drunkenness. It, it starts off with, I just need a drink. It, it just starts off with, it just looks good. It looks like something that's going to help me provide a little bit of escape from reality. And so I'm going to partake of it in order for that to ease the stresses of my life 
rather than looking at God and saying, God, I need to go to you in prayer. I've got stresses in my life. I've got issues in my life. And so I, I need an escape. I need you to come in. I need you to surround me with your love and your presence and your peace. I need answers. I don't have answers. I, need, I have issues. I need grace. I need your compassion. I need your love. It's so much easier to go to the bottle for that because it's a quick physical response, right? It doesn't take long for us to get to the point to where we feel like we don't feel. To where we, our thoughts are now hidden because we don't know what we're thinking. This is the temptation of drunkenness. So the question I would ask in, in regards to how much first begins with why are you drinking? That's where drunkenness is. Drunkenness doesn't have to go to the point where I forget my name. It starts off with why am I here? Why am I here? And I think that's what we need to caution ourselves when we partake. Guys, this, this, is, this is not against having a beer with friends having glasses of wine with friends, having a cheese and wine party, having, having beers while you're playing poker. Like, this is not against those things. We can enjoy creation. We can enjoy the community of, of one another with this. Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding that lasted for days. And people enjoyed. Does that even mean that there might have been people there who abused it? Possibly, yes. It's a wedding. It's full of people. People abuse things. If there's wine, they're going to abuse it. So it's not us looking at it and saying that I can't ever. It's just us checking ourselves before we partake to see where are we placing our hope, where are we placing our trust. So express our freedom to drink alcohol, enjoy a beer, enjoy a glass of wine or a jack of Coke, so long as it's not turning into hope and comfort for you. Because that's drunkenness. Fourth, we express our freedom for the benefit of others. Um, this last one goes hand in hand with the expressing our freedom through our conscience as well. Go back to Romans chapter 14 for a minute. Um, here's where we're at. Romans 14 verse 13 says this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Remember what we said about conscience, that the weak in faith believe that there are certain foods and drinks that are contrary to biblical conduct. Verse 15 says how we are to then respond. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Here Paul's saying, what's your goal? To eat some pork and drink some beer? Is that your goal? If that's your goal, then, then you're going to ultimately destroy someone who sees it as an issue. Your goal, rather, is to build up one another in Christ, to edify, to equip one another, to live out the gospel and proclaim the gospel. That's our goal. Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. 
This isn't allowing someone to, to be justified in their misunderstanding of the freedom of the gospel, but rather it is you expressing patience with them as the weak on this journey to understanding the freedom of the gospel. This doesn't mean that if you have a brother who says alcohol is the devil's poison, doesn't mean that, that you then, first off, engage in alcohol around them because this is what this is saying. That's going to cause friction. That's going to cause disunity amongst the brethren, amongst the brothers in Christ. So he's not saying jump in to show them that this is good, but rather to be patient with them by sacrificing your freedom to partake and enjoy in order to help edify them, equip them, mature them, showing them scripture, showing them areas that help them get their conscience up to speed. That's going to take patience. That's going to take a relationship. Verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a matter of who am I, not what can I? You hear that? It's not, a matter of, it's not a matter of what can I do or not do, but rather who am I becoming? Verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is, not, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The big thing to pull away from this is discern your situation. Discern your situation. Are you in a home where people view alcohol negatively? Then don't bring wine as a gift. Don't, don't start there. Are you going out to dinner with a couple who like to have a glass of red wine with a filet mignon? Then enjoy a glass of wine with them with your medium rare cooked filet. The stumbling block goes both ways. It's not just causing a brother to stumble who, who views alcohol as immoral. There's that aspect. That's the one that gets the most heat, right? Is when someone views it as immoral and then someone partakes, it causes a stumbling block for that person. But the reality is, is it can go the other way as well. John Piper shared a story just this past week and some research that I was doing where he traveled to Germany. He was invited into a home of people who offered a drink to him. And if he did not partake of it, it would have caused a stumbling block for them because they would have viewed him as casting judgment on them for doing something that in their culture has no issues whatsoever. And John Piper himself is, is a self-proclaimed teetotaler. He, he is, we do not drink alcohol. He says, even though I understand it to be good and in itself is not wrong, he says, we do not partake. But in that context, he said, I had a glass of wine. And I enjoyed the fellowship that I had with them because in that community, in that place, he was able to speak biblical truth. He was able to share the gospel with them and food and drink did not cause a stumble in that experience, in that moment. He discerned the situation. There are moments when you abstain. There are moments when you partake. 
both can be enjoyed in God's creation. Both can be lived out for the glory of Him, for the joy of us, and the joy of others. The way that I want to close out is um, just going back to the picture of, of the wedding feast that we're going to experience. Jesus shows us this example by what he did in, at, in Cana in Galilee at this wedding. The fact that there was an issue, there was a problem, and Jesus came in and fixed it. Not only did he fix it, but he made it better because he brought the best stuff. Guys, the reality is sin starts off great, but then slowly destroys us, right? This wedding started off terribly because of the mismanaging of a groom, but ended in the best way that it possibly could have ended because Jesus entered into the scene. And this is what he's ultimately doing the entire history of of the story of the Bible is God coming down because sin has entered into the world and is telling us that everything is going to look great. You can be God. You can enjoy anything and everything that you want to enjoy. You can worship those things. And so God had to come down. In order for Him to come down, He had to then come out and minister to each one of us just like Jesus came and ministered to this family in this wedding He comes to us, He pursues us, and He tells us, here's what's broken, here's what's messed up. And then the beauty is, is that He then goes to the cross in order to subtract it from our lives, in order to remove it from our lives. He's coming in and looking at all the pain, looking at the Proverbs uh, 23, verse 29 passage where it says, who has woe, who has suffering, who has strife, who has pain, who who in here has complaining? Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to remove all of that. I'm going to wipe away every tear, as it says in Isaiah, in reference to this feast that we are going to partake of with Jesus. In the end, is Him removing every tear that we have. Every reason that we have to turn to drunkenness, He's saying, I'm removing those things from your life. And He removes them through the death on a cross by shedding His blood. And what He does for us as the church is He gives us opportunities to worship Him through that act of sacrifice by breaking His body and shedding His blood in order to invite us to this wedding feast that we're going to experience for eternity. And what, the way He invites us as a church is by remembering it through the communion table, the breaking of His body by the breaking of the bread and dipping it in the juice They dipped it in wine. We're using juice. We still have cultural issues here. But regardless of the fact, it's red. And so we're dipping it in the juice that's a, a reminder of His blood that was shed for us. That was shed for us. And then He rose three days later, guaranteeing for us that it doesn't just end at that, but rather that He's going to resurrect us, bring us up with Him, Elevate, exalt us so that we finish the best of the best in a glorified body that has no tears, no pain, no stress, no whatever.
No more waking up with a busted shoulder because you slept on it wrong. We get to wake up to God for eternity because he came down and fixed the problem. And we worship him through that. We say thank you for that. So let's pray. God, you're so good. You're so gracious to us. And we just want to simply say thank you for what you've done. For what you've done, for what you're doing, and for what you're going to continue to do in the future. God, you've made this all possible for us to worship you. And God, today is an issue around the idea of alcohol. And the beauty of it is, is God, there's a way in which we can enjoy your creation and worship you in the same manner. And you see that as right and good. So God, give us the right minds and hearts to be able to discern the situations in our life, to not only discern those around us, but to discern our own hearts and our own minds when it comes to our conscience around this issue. God, may we see it in light of the gospel. May we see it in light of joy that leads to your honor and your worship. Because God, I don't want to partake of it. I don't want to do anything that does not lead to your worship. And so convict us of that. And God, as we partake of communion today, as we break the bread and as we dip it in the juice, let us remember in worship the fact that you broke your body and you shed your blood in order for us to be forgiven of sins and to now be able to honor you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at